Perform this on demand. Breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This, a place where I try to bridge that divide between the Islamist establishment that runs so many Muslim-majority countries with dictatorships and theocrats, and the West, those of us who are blessed to live in the freest country in the world and democracies here in the West, in the United States, Canada, and Europe, who have platforms, who have the ability to begin to take on the Islamic establishment. And this is the place where it can begin. If you've listened before, thank you for coming back. Let your friends know about Reform This. Let your friends know that there are Muslims out there devoting the time, taking on the establishment, and beginning to have those tough conversations. And Reform This is where we can have that conversation. Share this on Twitter at Reform This Radio, Reform This Radio, and my Twitter is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Go to uh, Blaze Radio and uh, find me. Share the podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. This week we have a lot to talk about. I'm going to talk to you about an unbelievable law that passed in Tunisia that I think is just a, a, a amazing milestone that... And I use the word milestone intentionally, right? The Islamists would say it could have talked about milestones. Well, us, though, us Muslims who believe in freedom, who want to defeat and put Islamism into the septank of history, septic tank of history, should have our own milestones, ultimately leading to countries that are based in an American-like constitution with a Bill of Rights, separation of powers, and a defeat of theocracy. Second, I'm going to give you a little anecdote about a, a, an exploited young Muslim girl in Utah that did a little interview that uh, I think was quite revealing. And last, the Brits are talking about laws that protect against Islamophobia. And they ask some questions that I think are apropos to learning how we should defeat this. So first, we have to talk. We have to talk about what's happening in Tunisia. Because... Ultimately, you may see this as just one little small. Ultimately, you may see this as one little small law that passed, but it is an unbelievable milestone. And as I said, we need to start marking those milestones on the road towards liberty, on the road that sends the Islamist laws and ideas on the plank into the ocean. And this week, Tunisia became the first Arab country to approve gender equality and inheritance. And as was reported on Friday, November 23rd, it became the first Arab country to achieve gender equality and inheritance after the Tunisian cabinet approved a law that would allow men and women to inherit equal amounts contrary to what's stipulated in Islam. And I, I think before we get into a little more of the details, we have to make it clear that and I've talked about this before, there is no way to read it differently than to interpret, and this isn't just sort of sharia out of the hadith, which are the tradition and oral tradition of the prophet, but rather this is directly out of the Qur'an, which Muslims believe to be the word of God. And it's clearly there's a passage in which boys, men, boys who become men, when they're talking about their inheritance, the family 
uh, will that they're provided from their parents are given twice the inheritance of their sister. And you can get into historical tradition and say that's not just Islam, that it had to do with head of households, yada, yada, yada. Bottom line is, is that there's no other options provided. Now, I have given you modern interpretations of that to say that we can say that that applied to the 7th century, put a circle around it, and say that today we should have equal inheritance. Or even if you live in households, that ultimately there is nothing mandated in the Quran about who is the head of household. That That is the lowest common denominator, but it is not mandatory. It can be related only to the 7th century, and that ultimately men and women equality is core to universal human rights, and Muslims and, and Islamists need to be marginalized that are the Islamists among the Muslims, and ultimately Muslims who interpret that as historical. And now that you've had a 18th century that developed an American democracy, now that you've had a 19th, 20th, now 21st century where the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is becoming the penultimate standard bearer for societal rights and human rights, that the equality of men and women is central to that. And that ultimately... There's nothing barring women from being heads of state, from being heads of uh, companies, corporations, and ultimately having every right to the iota, to the comma, to the T that men have. Well, you can't interpret a literal interpretation of the Quran to say that. You would have to do some of the modernizing gymnastics. Yes, I will admit it's gymnastics, but I think it is intellectually sound. Polygamy is permitted in the Quran, and yet I've never met an honest Muslim that believes polygamy is okay. You cannot treat a spouse equally and say that you're going to have others. You can find historical reason for that, but again, how do Muslims do that without changing the Quran? They say that there are some passages that apply to all of the future, and there are others that do not. And they say the passage that permits polygamy only applied to the Muslims that the Quran was revealed to in the 7th century and not to the rest of time in humanity and that that should be relegated as a historical passage and not a principled passage into the future. That's how I interpret it. And I think if you look in other faiths, the, the, the literalists are marginalized by those who interpret rationally based in reason and modern thought based in principles. So I think similarly, what we learn in Tunisia this week is that the Tunisian president, Beji Esebsi, suggested that the law should be applied for equal inheritance back in August 2017 on the occasion of the International Women's Day. And yes, the Quranic verses do state that a male should inherit what two females should. However, President Asebsi said that the citizens should be given the choice to follow that interpretation and inheritance should they wish to or not. Asebsi also formed the Individual Freedoms and Equality Committee in August 2017, which was assigned the job of proposing reforms for the Tunisian legislative system to give more freedoms for the Tunisian people. The president had said at the time that his legislative initiative was based on the Tunisian constitution, which states that Tunisia is a civil country, that is based on three elements. Citizenship, the will of the people, and the supremacy of the law. 
nothing about Sharia, nothing about theocracy, and that the rights of the duties in Tunisian men and women are equal, and that the state is committed to defending women's rights and works on supporting and developing them. And yet, if you look at the survey conducted by the International Republic Institute, showed that 63% of Tunisians, 52% of those women, opposed equal inheritance. So, I think this goes to show you why the way Islamists are going to be defeated will not always be in a populist sort of majoritocracy as we saw in Egypt how the Brotherhood was elected. That ultimately the Tunisians, because they're likely more sophisticated, more educated, whatever it might be, figured out a process in which they can have a democracy but also not have a majoritocracy that snuffs out the rights of minorities and vulnerable populations like women and also prevents modernization away from the societal monarchy autocracy that the king had so to those the message in what happened in tunisia on november 23rd just like the message of december 30 31st 2014 when the and the islamist party lost in tunisia the message was that it is not ingrained in our DNA as Muslims to be forced to live under theocracy or under dictatorship. There can be a third path. It is not ingrained in our DNA as Muslims to have only two choices, that there can be modernization, there can be reason, and there can be principled positions that ultimately democratic individuals elected democratically can marginalize the populist tendency right now to adhere to Islamist interpretations and create societies based in equality that would ultimately allow imams and clerics to thrive that interpret new schools of thought. And I think later, as Tunisia modernizes its interpretation, and you see this law now that endorses the equality of inheritance of men and women, you're going to see maybe a country 10, 20, 30, 40 years from now that if you do that poll, It'll be 20%. Just the Salafis who, and the Islamists that are left who say that men should inherit twice that of women and the Islamic interpretation with the new modern 21st century school of thought that I pray evolves. Do that. Now, why isn't this work being done in the U.S.? I think the fire's under the feet of Muslims in Tunisia a little bit more because the Islamists ran their country from 2011 to 2013 and 14. And they realize what happened. But in the United States, American Muslims who are allies against Islamism are protected by 99% of the population that is non-Muslim that they say, well, why should I go and take all the jabs and stabs that Zudi Jasser and Ezra Nomani and Rahil Raza and Shireen Kudosi and Arif Humayun and so many others take of the Muslim reform movement if I'm blessed to live in this great democracy? Well, What's going to be your legacy as a Muslim? If your legacy is going to be like Tunisia struggling to do, use this democratic laboratory to be part of the solution. They're not doing that. The majority of Muslim, silent majority, is allowing the Islamists to run things in the United States, and there's no fire under the feet of most of the Muslims to do what the Tunisians did. So this is a big deal. And while the media continues to obsess on the latest on Russia and other things that uh, uh, related to 
hyper-focus on Washington politics, there's a world out there that's evolving. Iran is on the verge of having a significant defeat of its theocrats that have been in power over 30 years. So much change is coming, and we're not talking about it. So when we come back, I want to talk to you about a little interview that Utah television media did that was ignored and I think should be focused on. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This. Let's go all the way from Tunisia to Utah. In Utah. And this episode of What Do the Islamists Say and How Do They Exploit Children and the American Agenda is brought to you by the Refugee Justice League. What is that? Orwellian-sounding Refugee Justice League. Well, they submitted a letter to the superintendent of the Park City School District in Park City, Utah, and they said, this past school year, the State Board of Education revised certain statutes, cyberbullying, hazing, retaliation, and abusive conduct policies and training. And as a part of that process, it recently approved the bullying, cyberbullying, hazing model policy. To help you with this critical part of your work, the Refugee Justice League suggests that you consider including the following language in your policy to further educate and protect your students. Number one. Student dress is a firm is a form of individual expression, and any regulation of religious approved apparel must be done in the least restrictive manner possible to maintain a safe, inclusive, and welcoming school environment. And it goes on. School officials should also appropriately accommodate student requests to not wear certain gym clothes and or uniforms that the student regard on a religious basis as immodest. Religious attire should be appropriately accommodated in school to include, not limited to hairstyles, yarmulkes, hijabs, turbans, jewelry, etc. This all seems benign enough. There's nothing to disagree with that. It's all protected by the First Amendment and is not at issue. There are a number of court cases that defend this. So what do they do? They then call the local media and bring out a news story that uses a child's experience in bullying to become the fulcrum upon which that letter is submitted and the school district is put upon the defense. And a student at Mill Creek Elementary named Mariam El-Shamari talks to the media. I'm going to let you listen to that for a few seconds. And she said her religious expression is her love. It's her religion. It's peace. And as a devout Muslim woman, the hijab is a critical part of her cultural identity. So she even doesn't describe it as a religious thing. It's her cultural identity. And she had that ripped away from her. And a bully came when she was praying during recess and pulled it off. Now, that needs to be stopped. And I was investigated by the school, and they said it wasn't actually done because of hate or ignorance. It was done just because the kid was acting out. And it could have been done to any article of clothing, and it wasn't targeted simply because she was Muslim. But they didn't like that conclusion, and they wanted to use it as an episode in which to teach the rest of Utah, the rest of America, a lesson. Here's the report 
from Fox News 13 in Iowa. A student here at Mill Creek Elementary is sharing her bullying experience, hoping to raise awareness about the importance of religious expression. It means a lot. It means peace. I, I love my religion. As a devout Muslim girl, Maram Al-Shamari's hijab is a critical part of her cultural identity. A, a woman that doesn't wear the hijab is most likely to get sexual assault and abuse than a woman that does wear it because she covers up. A piece of her identity that was ripped away from her. So, according to this poor, this poor, and I say poor girl because she's being exploited by the Refugee Justice League, her parents, and everyone else that trotted her in front of the media in order to make ignorant statements like this, that if an adult made, should be laughed out of the room. But when a child makes it, the Refugee Justice League and anyone else that puts her out, out there should express our disdain with this absurd argument. No, the argument for the hijab is a First Amendment argument. The argument for the hijab is no different than the ones, as their letter states actually, for beards, for uh, Sikh turbans, for yarmulkes, uh, uh, crosses, etc. Part of the First Amendment, freedom of expression, freedom of belief, freedom of worship, personal attire. No. They get this young girl who might be fourth, fifth grade, 10 years old, nine, 10 years old, and she's making statements about the fact that a girl who wears the hijab is less apt to be assaulted than someone who doesn't. So the two aspects, there is a deep disdain for Western culture there, saying that somehow, contrary to the entire Me Too movement, that somehow women who dress provocatively or not conservatively or immodestly are asking for it. And the other part is that men are animals, that women should be protected from them. That is the sort of mantra often in the Middle East in medieval interpretations where the Islamists don't allow women to drive alone, etc., because they will be raped, and then the rape victims are actually the criminals because they left themselves alone with these animals in the car or at work, and therefore they, God forbid, deserve it. That's the, that's the mentality of the theocratic Islamists of Saudi Arabia, of Qatar, of Iran, of the Muslim Brotherhood of Egypt, the theocrats of Pakistani Republic, of the Islamic Republic of Pakistan, on and on. And this little girl, this Utah Muslim, is exploited and trotted out by the Refugee Justice League to teach Americans a lesson. Yeah, there should be a right for girls to wear the hijab if they wish. The government should not interfere in what American citizens and their children and their families decide to wear around their head. But rather, they should be teaching them principles of freedom and liberty of what's inside their head. But the Islamists exploit a child to make statements that are actually demagogic, that are actually anti-American, and not about equality. And do we hear anything from the Me Too people? Crickets. Because the Muslims are too much of an easy tool for minority politics, for divisive us versus them mentality of the left that wants to say that they protect minorities and the right are the bigots when in fact 
Nobody on the right that I respect is calling for prevention of Muslim personal freedoms. But they do want the rationale to be based on American principles and Universal Declaration of Human Rights and not be based in a misogynistic rationale that somehow women need to be protected or in a Neanderthal mentality that men who are attracted to women need to not have anything to look at. That's absurd. This is a free society. And you cannot teach our children values by brainwashing them into repeating them for statewide TV in Utah. So we learn a lot from this little story in Utah. We learn the Islamists are continuing to be platformed by local TV, state TV, national TV to teach Americans lessons, all the while perpetuating gross stereotypes that Muslims believe that men are actually the antithesis to what the Me Too movement is trying to do, that Muslim men somehow, and we know this from the grooming gangs in Europe and London that Majid Nawaz and others have been speaking about, there is a major problem with this. So how do you address this? You address this by endorsing further subjugation through forced dress? No, that's not how to do that. There's some deep reforms that need to happen in the Muslim community to address this. But those reforms do not start by having children become examples of leadership who espouse and articulate ideas that are just un-American. I don't blame this nine-year-old or ten-year-old, however old she is. I blame her parents for exploiting her. I blame the Refugee Justice League. And I blame the television reporter that are the useful idiots for the Islamist platform who insist that all Muslims must be people who endorse the hijab. All Muslims must be people who endorse the inequality of men and women. More to come from that story, I'm sure. Zudi Jasser on Reform This. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to our last segment this week of Reform This. Now I'm going to talk to you. Let's go from Utah. We went from Tunisia to Utah. Let's go to London. In London this week, Doug Murray, who is an unbelievably bright, intelligent, and leading one of the thought leaders, in the Baroness Warsi. She, as Murray talks about, chose this moment to try to persuade the government to adopt their own definition of Islamophobia. And uh, as Murray points out, and I'd ask you to read his column, um, many of us have not been fans. I hate the term Islamophobia. It basically implies that anyone who criticizes Islam, Muslim or not, must be a bigot. It imparts rights to an idea. Islam is an idea. It's not a human being like a Muslim is. It's simply a religion. It's a religious ideology, so it can be criticized, and there should be nothing held sacred to that now. Should we respect it? Absolutely. But should the government enforce that? Should the culture declare a term and brandish people who criticize Islam, Islamophobes? Absolutely not. That's basically de facto blasphemy. Now, she defined four major areas that would define Islamophobia. And she said, 
she wants to push through a set of tests on what is Islamophobic. Four tests. Doug had his own definition and own questions to ask of that, but I'm going to give you my own question. And I think that's this is really instructive for us to have a conversation about how to answer these things. So first, she says, this is Baroness Warsi, a, I believe, a Muslim member of the parliament, a failed Muslim member of the parliament, as Doug appropriately says in, in London and the UK. First question. Does it stereotype Muslims by assuming that they all think the same? Does it stereotype Muslims by assuming that they all think the same? So I'm going to always approach these as a reformer. I am attacked from the pulpit of mosques like the one here in Scottsdale and elsewhere. I'm attacked because they generalize. They meaning the Islamists from the pulpit, the Islamist establishment generalizes those who are critical of them as all being bigots. They generalize everybody who watches Fox News, number one news outlet in America, they generalize all viewers as the same. Is that bigoted? I I believe you could say that it is stereotypical, it is inappropriate. I don't think it's bigoted. I, I think it's it's laziness and and juvenile, but that's what they do. So Islamism is not simply about being humble practicing Muslims. It is a political movement. So I generalize about Islamists that they have certain platforms of their party. The Muslim Brotherhood has a platform to its political party. So the Islamists claim that if we generalize about them, then we are bigots. And by definition, political parties, Islamists are a political movement, like the Muslim Brotherhood, Jamaat Islami in Pakistan. They have a platform in which if they win their elections, if they win their movements, if their activists are successful, they will put into place their policies, their ideas. So is it bigoted to criticize the Republican Party, and you're generalizing its Republicans. Is it bigoted to criticize socialists, to criticize the Democratic Party? No, they are an ideological clot that comes together to push forth a platform. So the Islamists, if we generalize about them, if they happen to be a majority of Muslims, we need to deal with that. So generalizing about Islamists by this question prevents reform prevents the ability to, to, to assume that certain ideologies pervasive are pervasive throughout mosques. So forget the majority of Muslims. What if you just look at the mosques? We sent our declaration of the Muslim reform movement to 3,000 mosques twice. Only 40-some got back to us positively. The vast majority ignored it or actually were offended by it and said that they do not endorse the principles of our Muslim reform movement. So... It makes the numbers actually look low when you say 70 to 80 percent of mosques in the United States are actually Wahhabi or Islamist or Salafi, fundamentalist, theocratic organizations that don't accept American ideals of the equality of men and women, that don't accept American ideals of the freedom of speech for apostasy, for blasphemy, for criticizing things that are supposedly Islamic. So, to ask their question, does it stereotype Muslims by assuming that they all think the same? 
If you're going to defeat an idea and reform, you have to begin to generalize about how many people believe of the Muslim population are part of a, a, a movement, of an ideological movement. And if it's a significant number, plurality, majority, you're going to have to start to generalize about what they believe. In fact, the Islamists come together and say they represent Muslims by generalizing against Muslims. So if anyone would answer that first question as being bigots, it's the Islamists who are the biggest. MP Baroness Warsi, it is you who is the bigot because you look at Muslims as one clot who think the same. Question number two. They think an Islamophobe can be found by asking this question. Does the criticism of Muslims, does the criticism consist of generalizing about Muslims in a way that excludes them? Does the criticism consist of generalizing about Muslims in a way that excludes them. I would ask you the same thing I asked before. So, if you believe that being Muslim is diverse ideology, from left to right, from uh, uh, fundamentalist to liberal, from gay rights to family rights, all these kind of things, then if you exclude people from that definition, by definition, the Islamists are the truest Islamophobes. The Islamists are the blasphemers. <laughs> but I won't bow or, or, or allow myself to go down to that level of insanity, of theocracy, of undemocratic, un-American ideology that has been defeated by the West. And ultimately, I hope now, Muslim reformers can begin to defeat the Islamists. So, does the criticism consist of generalizing about Muslims in a way that excludes them? I think, again, you ask the Islamists that. If they exclude non-Islamist Muslims, if their idea of diversity is ethnic diversity and racial and, and, and uh, origin, country origin diversity, that's not diversity only. Ideological diversity is the way they exclude others. Third question. Is the behavior or practice being criticized in an offensive way so it makes Muslims rather than the issue the target? Is the behavior or practice being criticized in an offensive way that makes Muslims rather than the issue the target? So, on the one hand, there's one good element to that question, which is the real element of bigotry. It's about bigotry against the human being, against an individual. Anti-Semitism is about being against Jews, a Jew, hating Jews. Judeophobia is about criticism of Judaism. So we often don't hear the term Judeophobia. We talk about anti-Semitism. So Islamophobia, that question itself contradicts the very premise of Miss Warsi's definition of Islamophobia. If the issue is the target, Islamism is the target. Now they all say there is no Islamism, it's all Islam. As Erdogan said, there is no moderate Islam, there is one Islam. He said the minarets are our bayonets, on and on. So, Yes, if you believe in an Islamic state, if you are an Islamic supremacist, a Sharia supremacist, then you want them to target issues in the West. But when it comes to Muslims, you don't want to target issues. You want to label anyone critical of your movement a bigot. So I'll take you up on that question. 
being criticized in an offensive way make Muslims rather than the issue the target. The issue should be the target, and it's Islamism. It's political Islam. It's separating out what is spiritual and pietistical Islam versus theocratic and oppressive Islamic law. So if she really means that, she doesn't just apply it to the West, she applies it to herself and the mosques that she claims to represent. Last, does the person criticizing really care about the issue, or is he or she using it to attack Muslims? Now, it's amazing how much these questions relate to the feelings of the individual. You know, many of the stark libertarians, as I'm close to being, actually, um, don't even believe in hate legislation because hate crimes, because they believe that ultimately murder is murder. You're going to get the death penalty, you're going to get life imprisonment. Uh, uh, the ultimate additional motives that you intended to kill someone from could vary to a million reasons from psychopathy to hate, and that ultimately the crime is based on the horrific deed that you did. There's some element of truth to that. But for a society to understand how to confront the ills that we have, I think understanding hate crimes is very important. So I don't take the libertarian approach to these things, but I will tell you that for the government to start getting into feelings and intent and, and outlawing things, just as now we're having the debate on social media about what is hate speech, what is not, these things are all about the same issue. Should the government, should big, big corporations that control major access of public communications get into the business of determining what is acceptable levels of decorum of speech? Maybe profanity, sure. Nudity, sure. For long, the court has ruled on these things. But we are too mean, or one group thinks that attacking their political ideas is equivalent to attacking their faith, then that becomes a weapon by which you suppress free speech. And you start to call people bigoted that are actually simply criticizing a theocratic, theopolitical ideology. So... Does the person care about the issue? Look into their heart. All of a sudden, you know, I saw a good friend, Fred Flights, who was working for John Bolton at the White House, attacked by even conservatives like the now, I think, off-the-reservation uh, Max Boot, who is is clearly no longer acting like a conservative and using Wahhabi information from the Georgetown Bridge Initiative, which is funded by Bin Talal, uh, Walid Bin Talal, and other initially Brotherhood supporters, you find that he was targeted as supposedly being an Islamophobe, but simply because he was critical of various Islamist groups and their interpretations of Sharia and their impact on the Muslim community. And he very vocally and supportively has been an advocate for Muslim reformers and others who speak out against Islamism. I never got the sense that he was anti-Islam. So when you ask the question, does the person criticizing really care about the issue? It's amazing to me how many people didn't care really what to understand what Fred Flights actually thought or what he felt. It was simply labeling first an Islamophobe then trying a way to trying to find a way in which to make that statement of fiction actually appear to be fact. And again, equating anti-Islamism with being anti-Muslim.
anti-Islamist as being anti-Muslim, anti-Islamism as being anti-Islam. And that could not be further from the truth for many of us doing this work against jihadist movements, against political Islam. So, you see these four questions that are supposedly being put to a parliament to become codified into law in the UK are absurd. Patently absurd. And yet, they're wasting time talking about it. We saw the same thing in Canada. M103, I talked to you about M103 before and how they ended up spending hundreds of thousands, if not millions, to give Muslims a platform in which to demonize people that criticize Islamic theocratic ideas. And it goes on and on. Please, ladies and gentlemen, defeat these ideas. Allow people to address what they feel are their feelings about Islam. No, we should fight against bigotry, against any faith, including Muslims, against any faith community, including Muslims. But if people want to be criticized, critical of any faith, Islam should not be given a pass because we're worried about paternally protecting a group or because we're worried about acts of terror, which again is a way to be stifled and intimidated by militants. Thanks for listening to me as always. Find me, subscribe to this podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes. Reform This. Follow me on Twitter at Reform This Radio and Dr. Zudi Jasser at D-R-Z-U-H-D-I Jasser, J-A-S-S-E-R. Reform This on Blaze Radio. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. We'll see you next week. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.